Well, happy Easter to you. You can go ahead and be seated. And man, today we gather together to celebrate uh, that Jesus Christ is risen. And if there's anything to get excited about and to applaud, it is that fact, right? That Jesus is risen today. So I want to welcome you to Crossroads Church. Uh, man, we are so glad that you have come today and that we get to worship together and to celebrate this day. If you are brand new with us, uh, welcome to Crossroads Church. Uh, there's a couple of things I want you to know about Crossroads Church as we get started today. One is, is that we are a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church making disciples of the next generation. And my prayer is, is that everything that you experience here today, from the music we sing, to the sermon that I preach, to the party that you're invited to afterwards, to what your kids are doing upstairs, would demonstrate that reality of who we are are as a church. The second thing I want you to know if you're new, and this is whether you're like, you know, just looking for a new church home or whether a friend like, you know, bribed you to come today and offered you lunch. Like I promise we'll beat the Methodists out of here today. Okay. But if that's your plan, but uh, we want you to know that uh, we want to offer a way for you to connect. If you want us to know uh, that you are here today, we make it really easy. You're going to see this number a couple of times today. It's our text number. It's 720-513-1933. And if you're new today and you want to take a step of connection, we would just invite you to text the word new to that number. We're not going to sell your information. We're not going to give it away. It's just a chance for us to get to know you and know that you were here today. All right. If we haven't had the chance to meet, uh, my name is Matt Manning. I'm the senior pastor here at Crossroads Church. And today, as we get started right out of the gate, I want you to know uh, where we're going over the next 30 minutes. And you have my word on that. All right. That over the next 30 minutes, what I want to do is I want to talk about hope. I want to talk about hope. And the reason that I want to talk about hope is really for two reasons. The first is, is that the hope that we have is the reason that we celebrate today. It's what makes this day such a big day. It makes this day so important and, and worth the excitement that comes with it. But two, I want to talk about hope because really when it comes to hope, hope is like the jet fuel of our souls. To have hope is to be human. And where we place our hope is indicative of the joy that we have in our lives. To, to have hope is to be human. And when it comes to hope, all of us put our hope somewhere. Every human puts hope somewhere. And so as we look out at the world and look out at culture, we can see the different places where, where people put their hope. Like if we're looking out at the world, a lot of people put their hope in relationships, don't they? Whether that be a boy boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse that here at Crossroads, we love relationships. We want to make sure that relationship is good. We want you to have good relationships here at church. We want you to have good relationships with your friends, your family, with your coworkers. Like we want your marriages not just to be good, but great. Like relationships are good. But hear me on this. If you're putting all of your hopes, say in a spouse, to meet your needs, to make you happy, to bring about ultimate satisfaction in your life, your marriage, <laughs> it's going to be rough. It's going to be rough. Others, as we look out in the world, when it comes to, to culture, we see a lot of people put their hope in their kids, in their kids. Now, we just finished a six-week parenting series here at Crossroads. We wrapped that up last week. We love kids. We value kids here at Crossroads Church. But if you're putting all of your hope in your kids and that you're going to parent well, that they're not going to, like, embarrass you, that they're always going to make right decisions, like, you are just setting yourself up for a life of disappointment, aren't you? Like when it comes to looking out at the world and culture, like another place that people put their hopes is in their ability to make money. And when it comes to money, like, like we're not a church that says that you should give all your money away. In fact, we would advocate that even some of the money that God gives to you is for your enjoyment and that it's given to you to, to enjoy and to be able to have things. We did a whole series at the beginning of the year on money. But if your hope is built on your ability to make money and to have money and to have stuff, 
then you are going to lead a very dissatisfied life. That you're going to be like John Rockefeller, who was the richest person in the United States at one point, who said, how much is enough? And he said, just one more dollar, just one more dollar, that's it, right? Like, like you are going to live a life, no matter how much you have, of consistent dissatisfaction. When we look out into the Colorado culture, particularly, you know, here in the Denver area, uh, what seems a lot of people put their hope in is, is their wellness, their, their health, their, their physical ability. Like, we spend a lot of time and money, don't we, as a culture on making sure that we look good and that we're healthy, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, being good stewards of our body is a biblical principle. But if you are placing your hope, here's the newsflash, that one day your physical body is going to break down that you will cease to be healthy. And if you're putting all of your hope into your health, that you are just setting yourself up to be let down. See, hear me on this. These things that I've just kind of ran through real quickly, your marriage, relationships, kids, money, your health, like none of those are bad things. In fact, I would argue biblically that all of those are very good things. But none of them are the rocket fuel that drives your soul. And if you are putting your hope into things that can easily be taken from you, you are setting yourself up for a life of disappointment. And so what I wanna do today in our time together is I wanna explore just one question with you, and it's this question. The question is, where do you find your hope? Where do you find your hope? Now hear me on this. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, and no surprise here, we're not pulling any punches, you're here on Easter Sunday morning, we believe that it is, then that has some serious implications for where you place your hope and the meaning of the hope that you have. And so the way that we're gonna explore this question is by looking at a book in the Bible called 1 Corinthians, and we're gonna be in chapter 15. Now we're gonna put all the verses on the screen, but if you have a Bible and you would like to turn there, you can go ahead and do that. And as you're turning there, I wanna ask this question to you. How many of you like watch or like Jeopardy? Just show of hands, how many of you are like Jeopardy? Oh good, quite a few of you. So when it comes to Jeopardy, uh, 1 Corinthians is kind of like Bible Jeopardy, all right? Here's what's going on. That culturally, the Corinthians, they were a lot like us. That they had a lot of questions when it came to faith and God and Jesus and how the world worked and what went wrong in the world. Like they just were full of questions about faith in the world. And so the Corinthian church was bringing all of these questions to the church leaders and they were asking these questions of them. And the church leaders thought, man, like why don't we just ask Paul? these questions. Like, if there's anybody out there who could answer these questions about faith in the world, it's the Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul was this great missionary who went around the known world and was starting all of these churches. He was so revered, he was so well-respected that if Paul gave an answer in this area, that, that people would, they would understand, they would go with it, they would, they would get it. And so the church leaders here, what they did is, is they took all of the questions and they sat down and they wrote Paul this letter listing all of their questions. It was like, ask anything to Paul. And they took that letter, they put it in the mail, and they sent it to Paul. And Paul began to answer all of those questions. And what he sent back is 1 Corinthians. The answer to their questions is 1 Corinthians, Bible Jeopardy. Now, long ago, uh, the, the original letter that was written by the church to Paul with all the questions, that's long been lost in history. But what we have is all of the answers from Paul. And apparently, apparently, one of the questions that they were asking was around the validity of the resurrection and the hope that it brings for us. That was one of the questions. And so Paul begins this part of his letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, answering that question. And here's what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
Now, where I want to begin with this discussion is that when it comes to the way that we experience the world, the world is not the way that God designed it to be, that the world is broken. And honestly, nobody really even argues that point, do they? Like, regardless of what faith system that you belong to, that pretty much everybody agrees that something has gone terribly wrong in the heart of man. Everybody agrees on that, that something has gone terribly wrong in the heart of man. Now, what that is in the way that we go about fixing that, now that varies widely from belief system to belief system. In our belief system, we believe that everything that we've touched, everything that we experience, everything that we see is affected by sin, that what's broken in this world What's gone terribly wrong in the heart of man is what we call sin. And the way that Paul describes sin is like an entity. Like, think gravity. That we can't really see gravity, but we can experience, we can see its effects on our lives, that we know that gravity is real. Paul says the same thing with sin. That sin affects everything. Even though we can't see it, we know it when it happens, we know its effects on us, that everything in this world has been affected by sin. And that once sin entered into the world, it opened the door for all of its allies. All of its allies of, of pain, suffering, and despair came marching into this world. That that's what's broken in this world. That this is the brutal reality of the human condition. So in this letter, Paul begins to answer their question about the resurrection. And he's answering this question to the church in Corinth. And he begins with, Jesus died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures. Now, when Paul talks about the scriptures, what he's talking about is the sacred literature of the Jews. He's talking about the Old Testament here. And Paul's saying that when it comes to your sacred literature, that this was predicted, that this was prophesied in your Old Testament, that the Old Testament said, this is the way that it's going to go down. That sin entered into the world, that death reigns, and that God would send a Messiah into the world to die for the sins of the world. That that's how this brokenness gets fixed. And now, when we step back, we go, well, Paul, <laughs> where does the Old Testament say that? Like, like where, is this, where is this talked about? And we could go to somewhere like Psalm 16. We could look at Psalm 22. We could spend time in Hosea chapter 6. We could take like weeks looking at Jonah, which is really an, uh, an analogy for Jesus' death and ultimately his resurrection. But today, because of time, I just want to take you to one passage written by maybe the most famous prophet in all of Israel, Isaiah. And Isaiah writes this about the Messiah, the Christ, and what would happen to him some 600 years before the crucifixion of Jesus. Here's what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53. This is a famous passage known as the suffering servant, verse 4. He says, Surely he has borne our griefs and has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. That means he was killed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds, by his wounds, we are healed. All of us, every single one of us, we are like sheep who have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That right here in the Old Testament, the Isaiah, the great prophet of Israel, is prophesying that the Messiah, the Christ, would come, and that ultimately that this Christ, the Savior, would die in order to forgive sins, that by his wounds we are healed. And Paul says, look, this is, this is pointing to who Jesus is, but Paul doesn't stop there. He says, not only did Jesus die for our sins in accordance to the Old Testament, the sacred literature, but he also says, that Jesus rose on the third day, just like was said in the Old Testament, to which we go, well, Paul, where is that found? Like, where do we find resurrection in the sacred text of the Old Testament? Where, where is that found? 
we don't have to look very further, just a few verses down in Isaiah 53, starting in verse 10, he says this, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see, listen to these verbs, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. So let me ask you this. If this suffering Messiah is to be crushed, killed, put to death as, a, as an offering, as a sacrificial offering for our sin, how is he going to see his offspring? How are his days going to be prolonged? How is he going to prosper in the hand of the Lord? See, what Isaiah is doing here is he's, is he's proclaiming the resurrection of the Messiah. And what Paul, in part, is doing here is that he's inviting the eyes of the Corinthians, and by extension, us some 2,000 years later. He's inviting the eyes of the Corinthians to see the details at which Jesus lived, died, and resurrection, and how it fulfills the Old Testament. That Paul begins his defense of the resurrection by appealing to faith. And his appeal is, is that Jesus has fulfilled the sacred literature of the Old Testament. That if you're buying what the Old Testament is selling, then Jesus has fulfilled it. Period. It's done. But Paul knows that he's talking to the Corinthians, and the Corinthians are a lot like us. See, the Corinthians weren't steeped in, in the Old Testament tradition and Old Testament faith. They, they weren't familiar with the sacred text of the Jews. And so Paul begins to make this shift, and he begins... To, or he stops appealing to faith and he begins to appeal to their reason. He stops appealing to, to the Old Testament text and he just simply starts to appeal to their reason and he does it like this. He says in verse 5, and that he appeared to uh, Cephas, that's who we call Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. See, these verses here are not appearing or appealing to the, to the sacred literature that you may or may not trust in when it comes to the Old Testament. That Paul turns his argument, stops appealing to belief in faith, and starts appealing to reason. And Paul says, look, I saw him. And not only did I see him, but at one time there was 500 of us gathered together and they all saw Jesus. Like, we saw Jesus. We talked with Jesus. We walked with Jesus. We ate with Jesus. We learned from Jesus. Like, this isn't some, like, grief-inspired dream. Like, I lost my best friend and I'm seeing visions of him. Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not what's going on here. There was 500 of us and we saw Jesus. And Paul goes, look, like, I'm going to be honest with you. Some of them are gone. Some of them passed away, but many of them are still alive. That You can go talk to them. You can go have the conversation with them. You can see that what they saw, that, that you can talk to them about walking with Jesus. I'm not crazy. Peter's not crazy. The disciples aren't crazy. We saw him. Go ask them. Go ask them. It's not an appeal just to believe. It's an appeal to our reason. And yet here we are some 2,000 years later, and we can actually go a step further than that, can't we? That we can look at, at what would be called like circumstantial evidence. See, every year during this time and this season, uh, magazines and, and organizations like Time Magazine and Life and the Discovery Channel and National Geographic, they all run TV specials and articles on what happened around this event. Like this Thursday on National Geographic, on their website, if you had gone on there, you would have found this as their lead article. How did Jesus' final days unfold? Scholars are still debating. See, the reason 
that all of these organizations like, you know, Time Magazine and Life and the National Geographic, that they're all writing this. And, and the reason they're writing this is not because they're like, you know, for the Bible. Like nobody believes that National Geographic, who's owned by Disney, is like pro-Bible, right? Like, like we're all on agreement there, right? The reason that they do these articles is because anybody who looks back on history has to be able to explain. They have to be able to understand. They have to be able to, 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 to really like, like account for the commotion that happened during this time. Why? Because there really was a commotion. Like you have to be able to account for the commotion that was happening in the Roman Empire, in Israel, in Jerusalem, around Jesus' resurrection. You've got to do something with it. You, you've got to do something with the disciples. That when we open the pages of Scripture, I mean, we, we look at the disciples of, of Jesus, and they went from being these, like, coward, timid, faint-hearted guys, and all of a sudden, they were brave and bold, Jesus proclaiming men. I mean, you have the Gospels of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, story after story of how these guys were simply cowards, and they were. They were cowards. And we see them all of a sudden go from like hiding out in houses during Jesus' crucifixion to all of a sudden proclaiming that the Lord had risen, that Jesus was alive. I mean, it was like a light switch went off in their lives, and overnight they were changed. I mean, just take Peter for an example. That Peter, we know, was, was at Jesus' crucifixion, and, and he lied to get away from the people who were accusing him of simply being a friend of Jesus's. And he's hiding out in houses, and then after the resurrection, something happens in Peter's life where all of a sudden he's proclaiming Jesus to these huge crowds. And as he's proclaiming Jesus to the crowds, he looks out at them, and he says, not only did Jesus die for sins and rise again three days later, but you're the ones who killed him. <laughs> Great sermon, Pete, right? Like, like, you're the ones who put him to death, the one that Jesus, that we've been waiting on from God, the one that we've been waiting on for thousands of years, the one that God sent into the world to save us, you're the ones who killed him. But you only killed him because God lets you kill them. That's what the Old Testament says. That Jesus so much didn't die as much as give up his life, that you killed him. Repent and believe, and on that day, 3,000 people fall to their knees, and they repent, and the church is born. I mean, come on, these guys, they became courageous overnight. And it's not like their passion waned, right? It's not like when I decide that I'm going to eat healthy, and then three days later, you find me at Chick-fil-A, and I'm like, man, how did they just make it so good, right? Like, like it wasn't like that at all. Like, like, their passion never waned in their life. They continued to proclaim Jesus until their death, and every single one of their deaths was just the worst way that you could ever imagine to die. I mean, church history says that Peter was crucified upside down, that others were burned alive at the stake. It wasn't like they went peacefully in the night, that they died proclaiming the message of Jesus, that you have to do something with the disciples. And not only with the disciples, but what we start to see is not only does this, this courage start to permeate from the disciples, those who are closest from Jesus, but be, this, this courage begins to permeate into the Roman Empire. That just a few short years after Jesus' resurrection, all of a sudden, like Christianity is exploding in the Roman Empire. That we've all heard of Constantine, most likely. That in the 300s, Constantine made the declaration that basically said that Christianity became the state religion of Rome. And we all kind of know how that impacted the Roman Empire. But you probably didn't know that before Constantine made that declaration, that the estimates are that 51% of the Roman Empire believed in Jesus' death and ultimately his resurrection. That the decision that Constantine made wasn't to usher in Christianity as much as it was an acknowledgement of what was already happening in the Roman Empire. 
that right before Constantine was emperor, his dad was emperor, his name is Severus, Roman Emperor Severus. And Roman Emperor Severus was a pagan, and he sat in his chambers one day, and he was looking at the rise of Christianity, and he said these words, these are some of my favorite words in all of history. He said this, how are we going to stop the spread of Christianity when they're so kind, willing to face death in the midst of hardship? Like, you have to be able to explain the disciples. You have to be able to explain the rise of Christianity and people who were, who were not close to Jesus. Like, like, what's going on there? And the point in all of this is that something happened historically that must be explained. And since it can't be that Jesus died and, and rose from the grave, that there's theories put forth to try to explain all of the commotion that was exploding in Jerusalem around this time. Listen, for us, it's much more simple. Jesus rose from the grave, that it's true, which is huge when it comes to our hope. Paul says this in chapter 15, verse 12. He says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, that your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Now these verses are so rich theologically, and I wish we had time to like walk through them verse by verse, word through word, but hear this. This is what Paul's saying. Implication number one, when it comes to the resurrection and our hope that the reign of sin is over. Like, this is the ace of diamonds in our back pocket. Like, like, this is so huge. This is so big that your sin is forgiven. That because of the resurrection, then the reign of death is over in this world. And that we should be the ones who are most celebratory of that. But Paul says this. However, if Christ did not raise from the dead, if there is no resurrection, then there's doubt, isn't there? there there's got to be doubts. And let's just be honest, let's just be truthful, just for a moment here. Like if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then maybe your sin is forgiven, maybe your sin is not. See, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, that means that he's still under the curse of death. And if Jesus is still under the curse of death, it means that your sins have not been paid in full, which means that any hope that we have is built on a fabulously terrible lie. But since the resurrection is true, it means that through Jesus that we can be reconciled to God because our sins are forgiven and the cross and the resurrection of Jesus come together, tied together in this moment in time which all of history swings, which says that your sins are forgiven, that your sins are paid in full, that there is no more guilt and shame, that you are free and alive in Jesus. And the headlines of National Geographic should say that the reign of sin and death is over. That's what should be proclaimed this week. You can clap for that. But the second implication of the resurrection when it comes to our hope is just as awesome. I mean, look at this. That Jesus says not only is Jesus, or Paul says that not only is Jesus raised from the dead, but it means that we will be too. I mean, look into these words that Paul says in chapter 15, verse 42. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. He's talking about us here. What is sown is perishable, that your body is disintegrating, that your body is falling apart, but when it's raised, it's gonna be imperishable. 
It's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It's sown as a natural body, but it will be raised as a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Let's just talk about an uncomfortable truth for a moment. That any single person in this room at any moment can die. That you are remarkably fragile. And no matter what you do, no matter how healthy you think you are, that you cannot depend on you saving yourself. That you just can't do it. One car ride, one rogue cell, one virus, and you're gone just like that. As pastors at this church, we get a front row seat into the tragedy of people's lives. And I can tell you without a shadow, without any hesitancy, that death does not care one bit about how healthy you think you are. That just two months ago, the son of one of our staff members, 27 years old, as healthy as a 27-year-old as you can be, he was about to be in the 1,000-pound club, if you know that when it comes to weightlifting, was caught up in an avalanche and died within seven minutes. That you are impossibly fragile in this life. That Paul says that our bodies are weak that our bodies are perishable, that we are decaying, that we are falling apart. And in light of that crappy news, he goes on to say, but it won't be like that in the resurrection. That in the resurrection, the bodies that we have now that are perishable will one day be imperishable. The, the bodies that are weak will be, will be brought alive in power. What we experience is dishonor in our bodies now will one day be made glorious. And the reality of, of this truth, the reality of this truth is that, that we are Easter people. That Paul's ultimate hope, and hear me on this, that Paul's ultimate hope is not that one day he dies and ends up in heaven. That is not his ultimate hope. The way that he says it is that his hope is that he does not arrive unclothed, as he talks about in 2 Corinthians. And what he means by that is that he doesn't just show up in heaven without a body. That his ultimate hope is that one day that he would have a resurrected body just like Jesus' glorious resurrected body that allows him the capacity to live and to work and to play in the presence of God forever. That the ultimate hope of the believer, hear me on this, the ultimate hope of the believer is not that we die and have some immaterial existence with Jesus. Our ultimate hope as a believer is that one day that we are raised again in a glorious body with the new heavens and the new earth, and that we get to experience Jesus and the relationship with Jesus forever at the heart of the resurrection is where hope lies. And the empty tomb for us is a solid, immovable witness that brokenness is beaten. That Paul says, with the God of hope running this world and Jesus sitting by his side with the power of the Spirit residing in us, no brokenness can stand forever. And one day, one day, day, our hope will reach its ultimate fulfillment when Jesus comes back again and speaks the final word of exile and exile's brokenness forever, forever. And on that day, there will be no more splintered countries. There will be no more icy marriages. There will be no more depression. There will be no more tears. There will be no pain. There will be no more wayward kids and unwise decisions. There will be no more weakness. There will no, be no more dishonor or sin or death in this world. That the only thing that we will have is life in our resurrected bodies. That when we reach for the hope with faith of fingers in the here and now, we will live in today's brokenness differently. Listen, even when the world's most harshest circumstances come our way, we will face them with joy. 
Because when it comes to being Easter people, we will not look at the brokenness of this world and go, what do you do? There's nothing that can be done. It's all just going to hell in a handbasket anyways. No, what we will stand and say is because we are Easter people, with God, what is possible? Everything is possible because of the hope that we have in Jesus. So as I close this up, please hear me. As I plead for you, if forgiveness is available and your sins can be completely and fully forgiven in this moment, and hope is accessible right at the tips of your fingertips, wouldn't it be dumb to let this moment pass by? I mean, if you're here today and you come around church, you know, during the holidays, Christmas and Easter, the reason that you come is because you feel it, don't you? That you feel that something has gone terribly wrong in the hearts of man. And you feel it, and you see it, not just out in the world, but you see it in yourself, don't you? That you know that something terrible has gone on in your own hearts, and that you don't measure up, that you fall short, that you and God, that you're not cool. I want you to know today that forgiveness is available to you. That the building didn't burn down when you walked in, Nobody to our knowledge yet this morning has been hit by lightning, right? Like nothing that you've done in your life can outrun the mercy of God that forgiveness is available to you when you submit to Jesus as Lord and Savior and repent of your sins. See, my prayer for you this Easter is that you wouldn't just get caught up in the color and the vibrancy that Easter brings, as good as that is. And that you wouldn't just get caught up in the fun of eggs and candy with your kids, which is super great. We're doing that upstairs right now. And not even that, that you would just get caught up in the coming of spring and, and the hope that the changing of seasons brings. I mean, how great is it? We're going to experience an 80-degree day this week. Like, like, praise God, winter's over. Like, like, it's going to be good. But I pray, right? I pray for you today that on this Easter... That as the author of Hebrews writes, that you would plant your eyes, that you would focus your eyes, that you would lift your eyes on the author and the perfecter of your faith. And that in it, that you would know that because of the resurrection of Jesus, that you have hope as the jet fuel of your soul. And that you would know what it means to be Easter people. Will you pray with me? Father, we, Lord, are so grateful Lord, for the truth and this truth in our lives. Lord, that this isn't just some made-up story of a tale long ago like Aesop's fables, but Lord, that this is the real driver of our lives, that this is the jet fuel that makes us go. God, please, Lord, I pray, I pray, Lord, that the resurrection and the truth of resurrection would, would go deep into our souls. And Lord, that it would give us hope to live this life as good as it is and at times as rough as we experience. And so, God, I pray for those today who have been walking for years, maybe even decades with you. Lord, that you would remind them afresh of the hope that they have. Lord, and it would be the driver, not just today, but every day of their life. And God, I pray for those who maybe wandered in here today, wondering if any of this is true. Maybe they wandered in today going, God, this is, this is your last chance. This is the last thing I have. This is, this is everything that I give. If you're real, show up today, and God, I pray that you would. And that as you whisper to their soul, they wouldn't hear words of condemnation because that's not who you are. But Lord, that they would hear you wooing them to you. Lord, help them know your love 
today. Fill them with your hope. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you've never experienced the hope that we celebrate today, I would encourage you just to take a small step. If you're leaning in the direction of Jesus, I'd encourage you to text Jesus to our text line. Again, we're not going to sell your information. We're not going to give it away. We just would love the opportunity to have a conversation about the hope that we have as believers. Today, we're going to go to communion, and we're going to celebrate together as a church and taking communion together. But before we do, I want you just to spend a few moments in quiet, reflecting on maybe the hope that you have. Maybe you've been walking for decades with Jesus, but it's been a long time since any joy or celebration filled your heart. So I just want to give you some space to go to God with that. For others of you, maybe this is the first time that you've even ever considered Jesus as your Savior. I want to give you space for God to speak in your life. And so take a few moments. You can close your eyes. And after a few seconds, we'll, we'll come together and we'll take communion. Friday, my family, after we ate dinner, we did the devotion and, and we talked about Good Friday and Jesus' cross. And, and my nine-year-old daughter, Mercy, she looked and she said, Dad, why do we call this good? And so we talked through the cross and what it meant and communion, that on the cross, Jesus' body was broken so that our sins would be forgiven and that his blood was poured so that we might have the opportunity at life. That's what makes Friday good. The hope that we have comes on Sunday when Jesus comes jumping out of that grave. And so today we remember the cross, the payment for the forgiveness of our sins by eating the bread together. And by drinking the cup that is our life. If you need prayer today, we would love to pray for you. Online, you can click the button in-house. You can make your way over to the banner. But I'm going to ask you to sing and stand as we celebrate and sing this old hymn, this old Easter hymn that Christ has risen today as a celebration of what God is doing in our lives.